God, it's our desire today to be a part of extending your reign into the world, but we know that that begins with welcoming your reign in our lives, and so we do. God, we say today that we welcome your reign and rule in our lives, not just over the spiritual things that we do, but for every aspect of our lives, our time, our talent, our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our treasure, our homes, our work. We welcome your reign. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you increase that submissive posture we have toward Jesus in us? Would you use that submission, a people humbled before you, to carry forth your reign into the world even this week? We pray all this. We pray all this in the name of Jesus who can take our strengths and our weaknesses and all we are and in his hands become a gift to the world. I pray that what I have heard from you this week, the words I've written on paper, that they would be a gift to our church this week. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you this week. Um, Steph and I and Jack took a couple days away this week, and so I'm back and feeling refreshed um, and excited to open Scripture with you and really just looking forward to everything that God has for us as a church. I have, um, you'll hear me say this more soon, but um, I am sad that quarantine is ending. I'm sad that it's coming to an end. Uh, or at least a pause, because I have seen in the lives of people in our church such growth. Those of you who have pressed in in this season uh, amidst the chaos of parenting your kids and teaching your kids, amidst the chaos of juggling work schedules, um, amidst the chaos of having new babies in the midst of a global pandemic, those of you who have pressed in, it is just so evident. It is just so evident in your lives. And so don't stop. Uh, just because, you know, life shifts its pattern doesn't mean that we need to stop, press, that we, we can stop pressing in. Um, I'm just so excited for the fruit that God is going to bear uh, in our community, um, both within the walls of Regen, but also in, in the greater community of Northeast Ohio to see what God does through that. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're very nearly there. This is the second to last sermon in this book. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5. Since Easter, we've been in this letter. We've been in this letter written by Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the twelve uh, in whom Jesus most heavily invested. Peter was with Jesus for every moment of his three-odd years of public ministry, Peter was one of only three disciples present at the transfiguration of Jesus. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people, it was Peter who was chosen to preach the gospel to the thousands gathered in Jerusalem. It was Peter who received a vision that meant ultimately that Gentiles, non-Jews, were welcome to the covenant family of God. Peter is a skilled preacher, a gifted orator, a gracious and decisive leader, but he is far from perfect. 
Peter is prideful. He often speaks before he thinks. And it is Peter who has preferential or even racist tendencies that were in need of correction. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. I'm looking over here because there's human bodies in the room more than we've kind of been adding in a few people over the last few weeks. It's just nice to kind of engage with humans and then that little black thing and the camera thingy there. So that's, hi there. So let's not forget that Peter was once a fisherman, scraping by in the region of Galilee, caring for his family on the meager income that he brought in from hauling nets night after night after night after night. And despite his tremendous failings and his humble beginnings, it is Peter, it is Peter that Jesus says, on this rock, this Petros, this Peter, I will build my church. Peter is named the first among equals, if you will, the leader of the apostles. Now, if you and I were a part of the early church, if you and I were there, if there was a vote, which by the way, there wouldn't be because we'll get to this in a second, but I'm sorry to tell you that democracy really isn't like a biblical way of leadership. Uh, There wouldn't have been a vote. But if you and I were there, and if you and I were in some alternate universe, would have been able to vote, I don't think that we would have chosen this blustery, potentially racist uh, upstart of an ex-fisherman to lead us. And yet Jesus chooses Peter. Jesus chooses Peter because Jesus sees something in Peter, something of real kingdom value, of real kingdom potential. Jesus chooses leaders for his people in the most counterintuitive of ways. It's really upside down from how you and I would choose leaders. Uh, We see this with David. David is the least of all his brothers, a shepherd, and it is David who God chooses to be a king after his own heart. We see this with Moses. Moses, a murderer and a runaway hiding in the desert. We see it with Ruth, a widowed and impoverished woman with barely a cent to her name. We see it with Esther, one concubines among dozens on dozens on dozens in the royal court. These are the people that God chooses as leaders. And as when we turn to 1 Peter 5, Peter wants to explore the kind of leaders that are needed in the local church. And I guarantee you that the kind of leaders that Peter calls for, the leaders that Jesus is looking for to lead his people, the leaders that he wants to lead his movement, they are not the leaders that you and I would choose. They're not the leaders you and I would choose. We're going to look at 1 Peter 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as you do, I, I just want to say this. This passage is so relevant for where we are as a spiritual family in this moment. Because here at Regen, we are smack dab in the middle of a process of identifying, calling, and affirming an oversight team to give oversight, to give shepherding care to our spiritual family here at Regen. And this passage is so important for us to understand how we want to choose those leaders who will serve among us and and what we want to see them doing in our midst. Uh, and, And again, the way that we are called to interact even with those leaders among us is so against the grain of our culture. So 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, let me read it and then we'll kind of pick it apart, okay? Chapter 5, verse 1, so I exhort, exhort means like a strong urging, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, 
not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, this is verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, quote, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember that Peter is writing to Christians that he has called exiles and aliens and sojourners. They are wandering in a strange land. That strange land is their neighborhood, their homes, their marriages, their workplaces. But it has become strange because of their new birth through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit applied the preaching of the good news of Jesus to their lives. They were born again to a new family. And and Peter lets them know that they are part of a family identity and part of God's house. Not only do they have a place to dwell in God's house, but they are the place where God dwells. They are God's house. They are God's temple, which is something we'll see super clearly when we get to Acts chapter 2. Peter gives them some instruction about submission and honor, that those are the core disciplines and practices for a people of Jesus in exile, for people like you and me. He talks about submission and exile in government, in marriage, and in other contexts, and then he turns to suffering Because eventually, submission and honor will only go so far in a culture that at its root is opposed to the kingdom of God. And so he explores suffering as a path to victory and blessing, as a path to holiness, as participation and intimacy with Jesus, as preparation for his final coming. And then he makes an interesting move that unless you're careful when you think about it, seems random. He gets through this long section of suffering that starts in chapter 3, verse 13, and runs all the way to the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, so I exhort the elders among you. Why are we talking about the elders all of a sudden? We're talking about the elders and leaders of the church all of a sudden. This so is actually a therefore in the Greek. It's a connecting word. What Peter is saying is that, listen, we've explored the unique pressures of exile living on the Christian community in these previous paragraphs. I've explored how following Jesus is going to lead to reviling and mocking and slander from your neighbors and friends. But then as he turns into chapter 5, it's almost as if Peter is saying, the pressures of your culture are going to fall especially hard on the shoulders of the leaders of the church. The pressures of that slander and that mocking, that slow Chinese water torture, drip, drop, random suffering, exerts pressure on the whole community, but it is a pressure felt particularly and peculiarly by the leaders of the movement. These leaders of the movement facing this pressure could be tempted to use their power for selfish gain. They could be tempted to domineer the people in their charge just to make their lives easier. But Peter wants to offer, he offers an exhortation, an urging, but it is also an invitation. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, Peter, it's almost like he puts his arm around these other elders and leaders' shoulders and says, listen, as a fellow elder, I just want to encourage you as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the shared glory that we're all going to have, I just want to encourage you. He's offering an invitation to these leaders that are experiencing these cultural pressures in a unique way. I was talking with a friend yesterday uh, about a church in our area that's in a particular kind of crisis. 
And we noted that uh, to outsiders, even to some members, every church crisis, every church problem is simpler from the outside looking in than from the inside looking out. Any church problem that you've ever heard of or experienced, you may say, oh, well, this was the problem or that was the problem or person A was the issue or person B was the issue. But when you're on the inside of church leadership, when you stand at the intersection of dozens on dozens of relational connections, you begin to see the complicated Uh, infinitely complex nature of what it is to lead a church. And when you add the pressure of our cultural moment of of secularism, of expressive individualism, of sexuality run rampant, you begin to get a sense of why Peter wants to offer a special encouragement to the leaders of the church. And so uh, there are some among us who I've begun conversations with to be on our oversight team. This is like a passage for you. And this then becomes a passage for all of us because Peter wants to give us some instruction on how do we interact with the elders and overseers in our local church. So we're going to look at these verses, but notice that the connection from this previous section on suffering to now is the way that that suffering exerts a particular kind of pressure on the leaders. And so this is how Peter kind of wants to help them. So he says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the suffering of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is revealed. Remember, he's coming alongside, putting his arm around their shoulder. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. This is verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Peter is exhorting elders This is a particular word in the New Testament. It doesn't just mean someone who is older than you. It doesn't just mean someone who is generally over 55 or 65 or 75. What it means is, the Greek word is presbyteros. It also means overseer. And elders and overseers, what I want you to hear from me, elders and overseers are the basic unit of church leadership in, in the New Testament. Elders and overseers are the basic unit of church leadership in the New Testament. So elders elders and overseers are mentioned throughout the Bible. For example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the letter Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who who are at Philippi, and then he says, with the overseers and deacons. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, We find that wherever Paul planted a church, he called and established elders and overseers to lead in that local context. It says this, and when they, this is Paul and some of his co-workers, had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul would travel around the Mediterranean world. He would preach the gospel that Jesus' people would spring up. And Paul would select out of that group men and women who could function as elders and overseers. He chose them by prayer and by fasting. And he committed them into the hands of the elders and the elders in the church together into the hands of the Lord in whom they had believed. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, Paul lays out specific qualifications for elders, specific qualifications for elders. Let me read to you just some of what he has to say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 2. These are qualifications for elders and overseers. Therefore, an overseer, a presbyteros, an elder, must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife, in other words, not messing around, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He or she must manage their, their own household well with all dignity, keeping their children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage their own household, how will they care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. See, even in that passage, Paul twice says that elders and overseers are particularly targeted by the enemy to fall, which is why when we appoint our elders, when we call and affirm our elders and overseers within our body, we are going to commit to be praying for them regularly because they become a target. Let me say again that the elders and overseers, these are the basic unit of leadership in New Testament churches. They can have a variety of gifts. They can have a variety of passions because we believe in the fourfold giftings of Ephesians, the fivefold giftings of Ephesians 4, apostle, prophet, not the fourfold giftings of Ephesians 5, the fivefold giftings of Ephesians 4. Be careful there. Because we believe in the fivefold giftings of apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, we want to see those deployed in our midst, but we say that elders and overseers the basic unit of leadership and governance in the local church. And note this, they are not elected. Nowhere in the Bible is a leader elected. They are called by God and their calling is affirmed by the local body through the laying on of hands. Our process is this. I invited people, at, folks at Regen, our spiritual family, to suggest, not nominate, to suggest names of those who may serve, uh, who would be qualified, according to what I just read, to serve in this role among us. I will share, after prayer and fasting, the names that are appropriate for that calling, and then you will be invited to affirm, not elect those leaders Sometimes it's frustrating to people that the Bible is not more of a democracy, even when American denominations have kind of constructed themselves to be democracies. Uh, what we actually see in the New Testament is that while everybody has a voice, only a few, a mature, committed, called few, have a say. And so the elders in these churches, Peter is writing to these elders, facing particular temptation, facing particular pressure, and he says, offers two exhortations. He exhorts them first to shepherd the flock of God among them, and then second, to exercise oversight. And I want us just to continue to nerd out on these words because this is the first kind of teaching I have ever done in the life of our church on what church leadership is supposed to function like according to the New Testament. And because we're on the cusp of calling and affirming those leaders and laying on of hands, we want to be so clear about what the Bible is saying. It's like, it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he got Kyle and said, why don't we preach through First Peter? He says, shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight. So Paul, Peter first says that elders and overseers are to shepherd the flock of God. Now just think about that phrase for a second. Shepherd the flock of God. Notice that Peter called us a flock. He called us sheep. And Peter goes on to say that we're not just any sheep, we are God's sheep. 
Art just read this earlier, Psalm 100. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. That we are called, to a, that we are called a flock tells us that we, as Christians, are in desperate need of leadership. What a countercultural thing to think in our moment of individual freedom, of self-determination. What we actually say when we become a Christian is that I'm a lot like a sheep. Sheep are notoriously stupid. Sheep are notoriously capable of causing harm to themselves. The Bible, when it talks about you and I, says you need a leader. You need to be led because you, like sheep, are foolish. You, like sheep, are prone to wander. You, like sheep, need someone to show you the way. We are meant to be led in the same way that kids are meant to be parented. We are meant to be led in the same way that kids are meant to be parented. And if kids aren't parented, what do you have? You have the toddler screaming their way through Target begging for a toy that they saw 20 minutes ago, and they know if they keep screaming and keep on whining, they'll get what they ask for. That's what you get. But we are not only just a flock in need of leading, we are a flock that does not belong to the local expression of leadership. We are God's flock. That means any shepherd, including me, among us, are really just under-shepherds. We're high, we're, we're, we work for the shepherd. We're, we're not the shepherd, we're the under-shepherd. God calls elders and overseers as under-shepherds for, for each local flock. Of David, Psalm 78, 72 says, David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands, and with skillful hands he led them. As shepherds of God's flock, Peter wants leaders to have integrity of heart, who have skillful hands, who above all, now hear this, who above all look like Jesus, who said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus says, lays his life down for the sheep. The basic qualification for elders is this, are they sacrificial? Are they sacrificial with their time? Are they sacrificial with their money? Do they embrace inconvenience? Do they embrace suffering people? That's what shepherds do. They take sheep that have been wounded. They bind up their wounds. They, they have a healing ministry. Do, do they have a ministry that separates sheep when they're biting at each other to help them stop and come back together again? Are they sacrificial people like Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd and a good shepherd, Jesus says, lays his life down for the sheep? Are they sacrificial people? Peter's first exhortation is shepherd the flock of God. By the way, that it's God's flock too brings this weight of accountability to the shepherds. Listen, Jesus says that if I lead you astray as your pastor, as your shepherd, Jesus says if I lead you astray, it's better for a millstone to be tied around my neck and for me to be thrown in the bottom of the sea. His first exhortation is shepherd the flock of God. His second is to exercise oversight. This is a different word than the way we use it, right? Usually we use the word oversight to say, oh, I made a mistake. I forgot something. Oh, I left that out of that document. It was an oversight. But that's not what Peter has in mind here. Peter is using a Greek word that reflects a Hebrew word, which is used in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isn't that I'm nerding out. This is great. 
And it speaks of a person with supervisory responsibilities. To exercise oversight, then, is to give an eye to the administrative details of our life together. Absolutely. But even more so, it's to offer spiritual oversight. So yes, our oversight team will keep me accountable as I hold the staff accountable. They will look at the money. They will help us think about long-term picture and, and big vision. But their primary role, the elders and overseers among us, their primary role is to prayerfully and patiently exercise spiritual authority, to guard the flock, and to keep an eye out for those who are going astray. Peter says to the elders among them, shepherd and oversee. Shepherd and oversee. But those are the things that they're supposed to do. But what's interesting about this passage is that Peter spends far more time talking about character than he spends talking about competency. See, in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1, Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he or she, they desire a noble task. Peter has called the elders among the church to exercise oversight, to shepherd the flock, but a desire to do it is not enough. There has to be a basic measure of character in the way of Jesus. And Peter spends, again, far more time talking about character than he does competency. Look at verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Then he has kind of three paired statements. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter has three qualifiers to how elders should shepherd and oversee. He says they, they should exercise authority, not under compulsion. Do you know what compulsion is? Compulsion is, well, somebody has to do it. Compulsion is, that needs done, and if I don't do it, nobody else will do it. Compulsion is, well, Kyle asked me, so I can't say no. Peter says, I don't want people serving as elders because they feel like they have to. I don't want people serving as elders because they feel stuck into something. No, I want them to do this willingly, a word that means wholeheartedly and with gladness. He kind of echoes the same thing. He said, I want you exercising this for shameful gain. And we tend to think of financial gain, and that's true, but what about the shameful gain of being seen as more spiritual than everyone else? What about the shameful gain of being put on a pedestal in people's minds? And what about being on the pedestal and enjoying it? See, Peter says, I don't want you to do it for shameful gain. I want you to do it with eagerness. Eagerness. A willingness, a passion, a desire, a hunger that comes from, we'll see in a minute, a call. A call on your life. Finally, Peter says that overseers, I love this, must not be domineering to those in their charge. Said they must be an example. One commentator, writes, commentator wrote this about the word domineering. Listen to this. The term domineering means forcefully ruling over or subduing and can carry the nuance of harsh or excessive use of authority and, and can be used in the context of military conquests. The word always seems to involve bringing something into subjection by use of force, whether physical, military, or political. Here, Peter forbids the use of arbitrary, arrogant, selfish, or excessively restrictive rule. He implies that elders should govern not by the use of threats 
emotional intimidation or flaunting of power, nor generally by the use of political force within the church. I've been here longer than you, so therefore you do what I say. But rather by the power, listen to this, rather by the power of example whenever possible. Let me just tell you how Jesus puts it in Matthew 20. This is Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. By the way, the same verb that Peter is using here is the verb that Jesus uses in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 20, this, this subjective, this subjecting use of force. You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among y'all. But whoever would be great among y'all must be your smartest person in the room must be the most successful business owner, must be the one with financial prowess or, or know-how. Or, no, the one who would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And I looked up the word slave in Greek, and do you know what it means? It means slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We do not lead, we're not looking for people who know how to lead on the basis of their knowledge or intellect or experience. We're looking for people who lead first as servants. We're not looking for people with harshness or emotional intimidation or who say the following, because I said so. We are looking for people who lead by example, who lead by serving, who accomplish their purposes by living it first. Doing so, leading in this way, leading eagerly and willingly and by example, leads to a reward. Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, vict victors in like athletic contests in the first century would be given a, a crown of leaves that would eventually dry out and fall apart. But Peter says you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that leaders in the church in this world are given a special measure of reward in the next. And so that's, for, that's intended to prevent leaders now from taking advantage of dishonest gain. We will be rewarded not in this life, for our service to the local church, but in the next, in the kingdom that is to come. Peter says who, that leaders who lead well now will be given a rich reward later. So with all about this, this about leadership, then Peter kind of turns to the rest of us in verse 5. And you think, wow, Peter, that's not a lot of time to give us instruction. Peter doesn't have much to say. It doesn't take a lot of words to instruct the rest of the church on how to interact with their overseers. It just takes one, one word that is somewhat hard to swallow. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, and even as I sit in this room, all of us except one are under 40. I love you, Art. I love you, Pam. Art and Pam are 41, so just right there. And uh, as, as a church called Regen, those who are younger approximates to about 50 to 60% of our body. Okay. 
You who are younger, be subject to the elders. He's making a play on words. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter calls out to the whole body, but he starts with those who are young. Why the young? The younger you are, the quicker you are, the more likely you are to despise authority. The younger you are, the more likely you are to try to shake off the shackles of leadership. We do it with our parents, and we do it with our spiritual parents. We do it with our parents, we do it with our pastors. The younger you are, the more likely you are. But then Peter kind of, lest those of us who are, say, over 40 feel off the hook, Peter then says, uh, those of you who are, then all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. He doesn't say humility sometimes. He wants humility to be with us all the time, like my underwear is with me all the time. I can't go anywhere without it, or at least I shouldn't. And, and, and Peter's point is that humility and subjection and submission, topics that he brought earlier in the letter, come back now to say that is the default posture that we have toward our church leadership. And can I tell you how radical and upside down is that? How uncomfortable is that? When you go to a church... I'm aware a lot of people have come to Regen because they like the worship. They like Kyle's preaching. They like this, they like that. I've never heard anybody say, I'm really excited to come to your church because I'm so excited to subject myself to the elders here. I really love this church because I just so want to be submissive to the spiritual authority over me in this church. And yet, what does Peter say that comes to us when it comes to choosing churches? Humility and submission. This is why th this kind of posture of humility and submission is only possible in a church where leaders are called and affirmed instead of elected. Because what I know is our currently elected president, who, according to all sources, won the popular vote but lost the electoral college vote, because it was a competition, those who didn't vote for them feel free from being submission, submissive to governing authorities, even though the Bible says, regardless of who your governing authority is, you're subject to them. If the local church votes its leadership into place, what will happen is, well, if you didn't vote for them, or I don't particularly like that person, I won't feel like I need to be submissive to them. But if they are called by God, if they are affirmed by the leadership, and they are affirmed by the body, then my next response is what? To be submissive to them. And if the leaders say, this is the direction that we're going, and I don't like it, I'm presented with two choices. I humble myself and go with it, or I leave. I just want to let that sink in. The leadership called and affirmed prayerfully says this is the direction. And you say, I don't like it. There's two ways to go about it. I humble myself, I pray about it, and I go with them, or I leave. But do you know what most Christians choose? They choose option C, which is gossip, slander, complain, whine, grumble. And Peter, and Peter says, no. Clothe yourself with humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think and choose submission. It's an uncomfortable word. 
We don't like the word submission. I'm supposed to be able to do what I want to do, determine my own way. Peter says when it comes to choosing a church, the first question is, can you submit to the leaders there? And if you can't, it doesn't matter if the worship is amazing or the preaching is really good, you need to move somewhere that you can submit and subject yourself to those leaders. So here's where I want to end. I want to offer kind of two ways to think about this and move forward. And one of them is I want to think about calling as it relates to leadership, and I want to think about how do we choose leaders as a church, as a movement. Let's talk about calling. Notice that, that Peter's words about these elders are eagerly and willingly. Willingly and eagerly. They speak to desire. They speak to calling. In a kingdom culture, in a kingdom culture, we do not serve because something needs to be done or somebody needs to do it. Maybe we do that some of the time. Because uh, if we wait for someone to feel called to clean the toilets, it's probably just not going to happen. If we wait for somebody to feel called to mow the grass, it might not happen. However, the bread and butter of our life together is found not in duty, but in calling it's found in, I have this deep inner sense that God has gifted me and equipped me and sent me and called me to function in this role in the body in this season. Not, I need to do it or nobody else will do it or somebody needs to do it or something needs to get done and if I don't do it. No, that is the language of club, not kingdom. That is the language of duty, not calling and here's what the problem is with just doing something out of a sense of duty and not out of a sense of calling. If you're doing something out of a sense of duty, um, I, I just need to do it because nobody else will do it, you will not bear fruit. Or if you do bear fruit, the fruit doesn't last much beyond you. But if you are operating in the place of your calling, and you have in a minute, we'll see the character to go with it. If you are operating in a place of calling, Jesus says you will bear fruit that lasts far beyond your life far beyond your reach. So how do you discern a calling? How do you discern a calling? Well, first, you pray. You ask, imagine a thing. Hey, God, what are you calling me to in this season? Hey, God, what are you calling me to in this season? And you know why we don't like to ask that question? Because we're afraid that God said, well, I was thinking I'd send you to Africa to be a missionary. Art and Pam are in the room. That's not the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Listen, if God called tomorrow and said, hey, Kyle, Steph, I want you to go be missionaries, we won't be your pastor anymore. I exist in this realm of I want to do exactly what God has called me to do and nothing more. And the minute God's calling has shifted away from me being the pastor of this place called Regeneration and of Grace and of Otterbein, the minute it has shifted away from that, I want to be out of here. And you want me out of here too because I won't be bearing fruit anymore. I won't be. So I ask God, what are you calling me to in this season? I ask God, I ask others, I discern, I ask, when my, I ask my leaders. Listen, when I was 14, I felt God call me to ministry, vocationally with my whole life long. And guess when God called you to ministry? He called you to ministry when you said yes to Jesus. Do you know why I get a full-time paycheck? Do you know why that needs to happen for me? Because I have so much, I, there's so much going on inside of Kyle that God needs me full-time, 50 to 60 hours a week just to kind of work on me. The, and, and so it's not because I'm more spiritual or more special. It's that God has called me to do this thing. All of us are called to ministry. When I felt called to ministry, you know what I did? I went and told my youth pastor. 
I went and told other people in my life who I respected. I had them pray about it with me, and they gave me feedback. Kyle, I don't think you're called to be a worship pastor. Kyle, I don't think you're called to be a counselor. And can we all agree that the worst place to put Kyle is in a room by himself with one other person for eight hours a day? Can I get an amen on that? Because it is. Um, we had people give feedback to that. That's how you discern a calling. What is God calling you to in this season? And here's the second thing. When we choose leaders, not only are we looking for calling. So when I reached out to these people that were suggested for Oversight Team, I said, listen, uh, I want to know if you're called to this. If you're not, please don't say yes. It'll be a disaster. Um, but we're also looking for leaders of character. In the kingdom, leaders are chosen for their character, not their competency. And hear me on this. This is the exact opposite of the way every other hiring is done in the world. You own a business, you work for a company, they need to make a hire, what do they do? They want to get the most competency they can get for their dollar. Here's our salary, it's 50000 a year in benefits, how much competency can we get for this person? And the church borrows that. We only have this part-time role, and uh, so we're going to hire whoever we can get. As much competency and passion as we can. And we'll worry about their character later. And in every case, you know what happens? We hire for competency and we fire for character. In every case. And so what does Jesus do that's so radical? When Jesus goes to choose leaders, Jesus does not look through the crowd and say, well, that guy's good with money. Let's put him in charge of the money. And that guy likes to fix things. Let's put him in charge of the building. Peter, he goes to Peter who's never preached a sermon in his life, who's never led a group in his life, who's never done theology in his life other than memorizing scripture when he was a boy, memorizing the Old Testament. He says, hey, you, why don't you follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men? And everything Jesus needed to know about Peter was found when Peter dropped his nets and followed him. Everything he needed to know. See, Jesus goes looking for character, not competency. And if not character, then a trajectory for it. A trajectory for it. Do the leaders that we have, we sense are caught as calling to be on the oversight team, do they have competency? Absolutely. I don't care about their competency. I care about their character. Are they perfect? No. Are they, in the words of John Wesley, moving on to perfection? You betcha. You betcha. Are they making every effort to grow in the grace of the Lord and knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Absolutely. And so what I want to say to you today is don't disqualify yourself from ministry because you're not qualified. Don't disqualify yourself from position in church. Don't say, I, I, don't want to, I can't serve with the kids. I don't know how. I can't preach. By the way, goal for this year, get Kyle preaching 75% of the time. I can't preach as good as Kyle. I shouldn't do it. Um, you know what? I can't pray with others the way that, that this person can, so I, I shouldn't do it. Don't let your lack of competency cause you to disqualify yourself. Because as a friend and mentor of mine likes to say, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So if you've got calling and you've got character, we can let the competency happen. Anybody can learn anything. If Peter can learn how to preach, if Peter can learn how to write not one but two epistles, if Peter can manage to engage theologically with one of the biggest, some of the biggest challenges of the history of the church and do it well, you can do what God's calling you to do. And guess what? You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You are going to be like Peter. You're going to deny Jesus. You're going to deny your faith. You're going to engage in a pattern of sin. You're going to uh, speak too soon. You're going to fail. But then Jesus is going to restore you. See, uh, 
right before Jesus died, as he was arrested, Peter denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus was crucified and he lay buried. And then, after, and then he rose again. And so one day Jesus, resurrected, goes looking for Peter and he finds Peter back to fishing. Peter had given up. He'd failed both in comp- It didn't matter how much confidence he had. He'd failed in his character. He moved on. And so Jesus grabs him. And he makes him breakfast. Jesus grabs him and he makes him breakfast. And they have a conversation and it goes like this. This is in John chapter 21. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you see Jesus undoing? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep called him back to being an overseer. He called him back to being a shepherd. And so Peter says, I exhort you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a fellow partaker in the glory that is to come, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering others, but leading by an example. And when the great shepherd appears, He will reward you with the crown of life that is unfading. I'm going to invite Zach to come and lead us in some response time. Father, thank you for the gift of leadership. Thank you for the gift of uh, being your people. Thank you for the elders and overseers in churches everywhere throughout history, but thank you especially for those men and women that you're calling in our midst to serve us as shepherds and overseers. God, I pray blessing over them. I pray clear calling, and I pray pray protection from the evil one. I pray that you would instill, instill calling on each one, each one in our body, that they might fulfill the purpose that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, I'm going to be doing the prayer time for us today, but before I do that, I want to alert your attention to the links for the prayer room. So if you need prayer for something uh, on your own accord, you can click that, click that link and, and use those to, somebody will be there to pray with you. Um, I'm also going to give you three thoughts based on the sermon today that maybe if it kind of strikes you in a way that you can go in and pray about those as well. Um, the first one upon listening to the sermon uh, that I thought about is, wh- what is God saying to you about your character? Uh, maybe God is putting another person on your mind that has upstanding character. Is he calling you or another person in your church family into leadership, into ministry, particularly the elders and the overseers of a church? So what I, if, that's, if that's something that's on your heart today, then what I want you to do is I want you to pray about it. I want you to ask God what he thinks about that, and then I want you to tell somebody about what you think because we need the affirmation as well. Uh, Maybe you need to respond to what God is saying to you about leading in your own home. God wants us to be in ministry, and I believe that starts in your own house, with your own family. 
If you are a single person and you don't have that, then uh, if you're living with your parents, then maybe that's where you need to kind of start a conversation with them. Uh, if you're not living with your parents, maybe you just bring that right to your church and, 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 and have that conversation uh, with your spiritual family. But what I want you to do is I want you to ask God what you need to do to fortify your own character. It starts with that. And then lastly, for the rest of us that aren't being called into some sort of ministry as elders and overseers, are you being called into continuous prayer? Ask God where your heart is on the topics of humility and honor and what you can do to create unity in your family at home and in your family in the church, in your spiritual family.